0: Good morning. See everybody. Let's rise up. Give the Lord our worship today. Come on.
1: We need no other hiding place. I hope it's safe within your name.
0: So glad you're here for worship today, everybody. Welcome to Hope Vale. I hope today is a powerful, life-changing day for you in Jesus' name. So, hey, before you have a moment, take just a second, say hello to some people around you. We'll see you back in a second. Thanks.
2: Okay, here's a question. Do you believe you have a personal responsibility to share your faith? Surveys have shown that the overwhelming majority of you would answer yes. Okay, so what about this question? Have you shared your faith with anyone in the last six months? Surveys have shown that a majority of you would answer this question? No. I guess it's just not as easy as it seems, or at least as easy as we'd like it to be. Well, here's another question. How many times have you personally invited an unchurched person to church? Now this seems simple, right? And yet, Surveys tell us that almost half of you would answer zero. I mean, there are lots of reasons why we don't, right? Like, maybe it still feels a little awkward and uncomfortable, or maybe we're just unsure how effective it is, or we just expect to hear them say, well, no. Okay, so listen to this. When people are asked why they came to church in the first place, the vast majority of them say, I began attending because someone invited me. It wasn't the music or the pastor, it wasn't the childcare, the youth program or the building. Although these are all great things, important and valuable things, the main thing that got most of you up and through that door the first time, wasn't any of these, it was an invitation. Easter will be here soon. It's the perfect Sunday to share with others what your faith is all about. And it can all start with one more simple question. Want to come to church on Sunday? Let's change the stats and let God change hearts and lives this Easter. And let's start with something simple, an invitation.
3: Well, awesome. Good morning, Hope am I'm, I'm Pastor Ken. I'm the Associate Senior Pastor here at the church. And I just want to welcome you this first Sunday of Holy Week as we begin the Easter season. And can you, can you believe that, that next Sunday is Easter? Doesn't it seem, and I don't know if we we took a little trip with some folks and we're just coming back, and I don't know if it's that reason or what it is. that It just feels like, boy, Easter just is on us quickly, isn't it? Well, we, you may know this, but we have services next Sunday at 8, 9, 30, 11, and 12:30, and we will have children's ministries for infant through pre-K children for all four of those services, okay? And all that information is on this postcard. You just saw the video about inviting someone else. So this is for you, if you want to remember service times. If you're like us, when we change service times around here, sometimes you're like, okay, was it regular time or another? T-? You know, you kind of forget that. But, um, so this is for you, but this is also a, a great tool to invite someone you know, a coworker, a family member, a neighbor. You think about our series, this could be a crossroads moment with Jesus for someone you know. So I encourage you to step out, take a risk, uh, be kind about it, pray about it, but invite somebody else. And this this postcard is a great tool for doing that. Well, and this Thursday, uh, we have our Maundy Thursday services, 6 and 7.30 p.m. And this is a time really for our church family. This is a time for us to remember, to reflect on the suffering, the crucifixion of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's going to be a very special time and our children's ministries is open at 6 p.m. for one of those services. So we invite you to to be part of uh, this Holy Week, Maundy Thursday, Easter Sunday, and to share that with someone else that you know that would be encouraged uh, by one of our services. Now, I wanna invite our ushers to come forward, and this is a good time to remember, as we give our offerings, as we reflect that we've already given online, to remember this that we are supporting this message that we proclaim over Easter week. And that is that Jesus died for our sins, He was buried, He rose again according to the scriptures on the third day. That's our message, that's, that's our ministry, that's our mission as Hopevale Church. And we get the, the privilege really of supporting that, being part of that uh, through our giving this morning. So let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this special week, and whether we feel like it's come up upon us uh, quickly, and we pray that you'll help us to have times with you, times to slow down, sweet times, Lord, to just worship you, to remember, to thank you for all that you have done for us. And Lord, thank you that we can set aside a special time like Thursday, and just remember what you went through for us, and for our sins. And Lord, then the celebration of Easter, just the awesomeness of the realization that you are alive, that you rose from the dead. And Lord, this is a message, this is a message of hope that every person in our community needs to know, believe, embrace. They need to know you. And so Lord, we pray that you will use us this week. Use Renee and me. Use us to be a people who are inviting to others. And so we pray that you will use our services this week, not only in our own lives and for our families, but in the lives of others who need a crossroads moment with the living God. And so we pray for that. Lord, thank you for this time of giving. Thank you that we can worship you through giving to you just part of what you have entrusted to us. And we pray that you'll use these gifts to spread this message of hope of Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Thanks, Pastor Ken. Hi, friends. My name is uh,
0: Billy Petty. I'm your worship pastor here at Hopevale. So, uh, yeah, 2,000 years ago, um, uh, today marks, uh, around 2,000 years ago, today marks this day, Palm Sunday. And uh, even though it's uh, 2,000 years later and Christ rose from the dead and we celebrate and that's why we come to uh, give glory to God uh, as Christians, um, it's still... um, I've heard worship as is a is a reenactment. When you come to church, worship can be considered a reenactment of our faith. So, as we consider what Palm Sunday is today, we're reminded of what that is, and then we'll come Thursday. We'll be reminded of the Lord's Last Supper. We'll reenact some of those things and taking communion together. And then Sunday, Easter Sunday, we'll reenact uh, Him rising from the grave and we'll celebrate. So um, it's a great way for us to tell the story. To be reminded as we reenact. So, today is Palm Sunday when the church commemorates the day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, of all things. And the crowd was so excited that He was there because they really thought Jesus was the Messiah and He was the one that was coming to save, like we just sang about. And He uh, was greeted by uh, shouts of, "'Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord!' And they laid down palm branches in His way." for the donkey to go, by the way, sort of a red carpet treatment, if you will. Five days later, um, it was that very same crowd, ironically enough, that shouted, crucify him. The same crowd that welcomed him and shouted, Hosanna, blessed is, the, is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is the one who shouted, crucify him. Kind of stark to think about. If you, re, if you read today's sermon title, Pastor Dan will be speaking about Barabbas. And without giving too much away from what's happening in the message time today, the story of Barabbas is a pretty right-on parallel to where we are as believers today. And we stand guilty before God and deserving punishment for our sin, but Jesus willingly took our place, and um, that's why we celebrate today as Christians, because Jesus took our place, and we were able to be removed from that that, uh, punishment. Barabbas was removed from his punishment, because he was a criminal, and Jesus took his place. That's really what causes us, us to celebrate our faith. So I want to continue to ask us to, uh, to ask everybody to join in worship today as we kind of hail our own hosannas and our own worship in these moments, as we consider what Palm Sunday is in this last week of Christ's life, as we consider uh, Palm Sunday and Barabbas today. So let's rise up in this place and worship. Rod, take us in, man. So, God, we're here today for worship to consider your son and the story of what he did for us. That's why we show up to this place. So, God, would you honor our intention, please, we pray, our intention to know you more, our intention to understand you greater. And, God, so uh, would you help us be reminded that you are set apart and that you are holy. We love you, Lord, and you are Hosanna in the highest. In Jesus' name we pray and say as a church, amen. God bless you, gang. Have a seat.
4: It's great to share this Sunday of worship with you. I'm Dan Davis, senior pastor of Hopevale Church. And as many of you know, 34 people from our church, including Pastor Ken, Pastor Pete, and me, just returned from an 11-day trip from Israel, the land of the Bible. And it was phenomenal. You were looking up here and you go, wow, he looks a little tan. No, it's a holy glow, actually. It was that powerful. We had been told that a trip like this would make the Bible come alive like it never had before, and it's true, that to walk where Jesus walked was a worship experience unto itself, and I'm so glad, I feel so privileged that I got to share that with others who are part of the hopewell Church family. And when we were there, I couldn't help but think of the rest of you here in this message series that we're in right now, Crossroads. Crossroads, where our story meets his, his meaning the story of Jesus. And more specifically, when I was there, I thought about the two characters that Pastor Sam and Pastor Adam have talked about in the last couple weeks Judas and Peter. I thought about Judas when we are at the Garden of Gethsemane in Jerusalem, this grove of olive trees where Jesus wrestles in prayer and surrenders his will to the will of his heavenly Father on the way to the cross. Because it's also right here where, shortly after, Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss and has him arrested and hands him over to the authorities. I also thought of Peter. It's hard not to think of Peter when you're in Israel. I thought of him when we were at the Sea of Galilee, where he worked as a fisherman, where Peter was later called by Jesus to become one of his disciples, and where Peter was part of many of the miracles that Jesus performed there, like stilling the storm and walking on water. I thought of Peter when we were at this church in Jerusalem called St. Peter in Galicantu, a Latin term meaning the rooster's crow. That's right, the very spot where Peter, after Jesus was arrested, denied his Lord three times. And by the way, true story, we're walking out of the church and off in the distance, we hear the crow of a rooster. And this isn't some Disney animatronic thing. This is like a real live rooster. Pretty, pretty haunting. But then I also thought about Peter when we were on the northern shore of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee where Peter's restoration following the resurrection of Jesus takes place that Pastor Adam talked about last week in John chapter 21. So many sites that were not only historical, but they're also spiritual. Crossroads moments, monuments to the amazing grace of Jesus Christ, the amazing faithfulness of our God. Now, I share all that to remind you that the stories you've heard so far in this series, they're true. They really happen. Real people at real places on the same planet. Sure, the era is different, the culture is different, the language is different, but in the things that matter most, like our dreams and desires, our doubts and disappointments, our fears, our failures, our struggles, our questions... Those things, whether you're young or old, male, female, married, single, they're really the same. That's why you could identify with Pastor Sam's message on Judas, or Pastor Adam's message on Peter. Because the story of Jesus not only intersects at the crossroads of their lives, but 2,000 years later, his story also intersects with ours as well. That's what's so great about this series, and even more specifically, that's also what's great about this time of year, that as we remember Palm Sunday today, that as we also then approach Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we come face-to-face with events that not only change the course of human history, but events that also have the power to change forever the course of our own personal histories as well. And so as we continue on in our Crossroads series today, I want to introduce you to another character from the final days of Jesus's life. But unlike Peter, and even unlike Judas, this man was not one of the 12 disciples who spent many years with Jesus. Not only that, but I'm not even sure that this man actually ever met Jesus at all. And yet their stories cross, their lives intersect at a very pivotal moment for both of them. And so as we take a look at this man's story, we're not only going to see the impact of his life at the crossroads of Jesus, But I also believe we're going to get a glimpse, a glimpse into the same kind of potential impact on our own story as well. So today, we're going to look at the story, as Billy said, of a man named Barabbas. Barabbas. I'm just curious, how many of you have heard that name before? Okay, quite a few. His name, Barabbas, or Bar-Abbas, literally means son of the father. Barabbas. Now, the Bible only records one Incident from the life of Barabbas, but it's significant enough that it's repeated in all four of the Gospels of the New Testament Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now we're going to read through that story in a moment from one of those four Gospels, but before we do, let's paint a little picture of who this Barabbas is and what we know about him. Matthew calls him a well known or notorious prisoner. Mark says that he's in prison with the insurrectionists or the rebels who had committed murder in the uprising. Similarly, Luke says that he's in prison for insurrection and murder, and John says that he had taken part in an uprising, this consistent testimony of who this Barabbas is. But as you see this description, a few questions might come to mind. Like, first of all, what is this insurrection or this rebellion or this uprising that the Gospels talk about? Well, we don't know the exact specifics, but historically, we've got a pretty good idea. Barabbas was a Jew who lived under the oppressive hand of the Roman Empire. And it was fairly common back then among certain pockets of the Jewish people to try to strike back against Rome, however they could. Why? Because their life felt so helpless and hopeless under such oppression. To give you a contemporary picture of how it felt back then, Think the Hunger Games, right? Think this heartless, authoritarian government that's so strong, so powerful, that it wants to immediately squash out and punish any kind of rebellious action whatsoever. That's Rome. And so, Brabus is part of this insurrectionist group. Is he the leader? Maybe, I mean, Matthew does tell us that he was well-known and notorious. Now, technically speaking, though, we don't know if Barabbas was actually the one who had committed this murder, a murder, no doubt, of some type of Roman official. But he's certainly part of the group that had done so, and that is more than enough to find yourself in prison for a long, long time. But here's what else we know about Barabbas. Barabbas also was likely a death row inmate, a death row inmate. After all, he's not in jail for robbery or back taxes. He's not even in jail for murdering a fellow Jew. No, he rebelled against Rome. He killed one of their own. And you know what Rome did with criminals like that? Capital punishment. Capital punishment, and more specifically, capital punishment by their favorite method, death by crucifixion. It was a Roman specialty, something they had been doing well before Jesus had shown up on the scene. Now, we're pretty sure they didn't invent it, but we do know that they perfected it. Back then, crucifixion was considered the most shameful and disgraceful way to die, so much so that condemned Roman citizens were usually exempt from it. Now, crucifixion was for outsiders who were unwilling to conform to the Roman way. Now, the Romans loved crucifixion for three main reasons. It was painful... It was prolonged, and it was public. It was painful. It was very cruel and unusual punishment. It was prolonged, that death was far from immediate. No, it would draw out the span of suffering before someone died, and it was public. It was out in the open for everyone to see. Now, today in our country, in states that still practice capital punishment, the approach is the exact opposite, isn't it, right? Something like lethal injection is meant to be quick and pain-free, humane, if you will. And it takes place in private, away from the media, with just a handful of people witnessing the event. But back then, no. The Romans wanted the guilty to suffer. Our English word excruciating ties directly to this word crucifixion. But even more, they wanted to make an example out of these criminals. You mess with Rome, and this is what's going to happen to you. That's why crucifixions usually took place not on a hill far away, but right by the roadside for everyone to see. That's why they listed the crimes of the condemned right there on the cross. It's also why they would often leave the corpses up on those crosses for days after death, just to drive home the point that you don't mess with Rome. So let's think about Barabbas this well-known notorious prisoner who's arrested and convicted for rebellion and murder and sentenced to die, where the only question about his death isn't if it will happen, but when it will happen. So let's stop for a moment. Let's try to enter in to what that must feel like, to be in his shoes. What goes through your mind? What feelings do you experience when there is a death sentence hanging over your head. One, that there is no chance of a last-minute appeal or call from the governor at the 11th hour. No, your fate is sealed. You're not just facing death, but you're facing death in the worst possible way. I mean, I think words like helpless and hopeless can't even begin to describe that kind of despair. And this is Barabbas. This is his fate, but little does he know that before he faces this inevitability, his life is about to come to a crossroads. And his story is about to meet Jesus' story. So let's see what happens. Let's go to the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verse 1. This is where Jesus, this is after he's arrested, right? Betrayed by Judas and arrested by the authorities. This is what Mark says. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin, you you get this picture of a very large group, made their plans, so they bound Jesus and led him away and handed him over to Pilate. So here you have religious authorities who are now handing him over to a Roman authority, a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor for the province of Judea. And this is where everything is taking place. Now, the religious authorities were the ones who wanted Jesus killed. Why? Because he was a threat to their religious hierarchy, to their way of life, especially as more and more of their people were pulling away from them and following Jesus instead. Their problem, though, is that they didn't have any authority to execute anyone who they felt was violating their religious laws. Now, capital punishment was Rome's territory. So follow the trail here, right? Judas, as we saw two weeks ago, betrays Jesus and hands him over to the religious authorities. But now these religious authorities here are handing him over to Pilate, the governmental authority. Verse two, "'Are you the king of the Jews?' asked Pilate. "'You have said so,' replied Jesus replied." The chief priests accused him of many things. They're piling up the charges, hoping something would stick, right? But the main charge that they wanted to stick was this one, that Jesus claimed to be king of the Jews. They wanted to paint this picture of Jesus, him being one more rebel, right, who's trying to break free of Rome by claiming to be a king himself. So Pilate asked him again, are Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. You know why Pilate was amazed? Pilate was amazed because he knew that Jesus had done nothing worthy of death. Nothing. Luke in his gospel says that Pilate said on three different occasions to those around him that he could find no basis for a charge against Jesus. Still, Jesus says nothing. He says nothing, even though at that moment he could have proved his innocence and walked away as a free man. Yet he says nothing. Mark goes on, verse 6. Now it is the custom at the festival, that is Passover, to release a prisoner from whom the people requested. A man called, there it is, Barabbas, was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. Barabbas, in prison, right? And here we are. We're approaching the crossroads, verse 8. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. Now, here's what you need to know about Pilate Pilate is the ultimate politician. He is, because personally, He doesn't want to condemn an innocent man to death. He knows that there's no legitimate charge against Jesus. As a matter of fact, Matthew in his gospel writes that Pilate's wife tells Pilate that she has a dream, a dream about Jesus, that Jesus is an innocent man and that Pilate should have nothing to do with him. And so this is what Pilate's thinking personally, but politically... (laughs) he's got problems. Politically, he doesn't want to offend this large special interest group of religious authorities under his jurisdiction. So he comes up with this genius solution, right? He's going to let the crowd of people who are gathered there make his hard decision for him, right? Politician, right? Pretty smart, pretty ingenious solution. And so he plays off the crowd of this annual Passover ritual of releasing one man from prison. And he gives the crowd a choice. Jesus of Nazareth or Barabbas. Now he figures this is a no-brainer, right? The crowd is going to see the obvious choice between these two men. They're going to choose the one who in his mind is worthy of freedom, Jesus, right? Not Barabbas the murderer, Barabbas the insurrectionist. Now, all this looks good on paper, but there's a kink in the plan. Verse 11. But, but, the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. Now, left to themselves, I think the crowd might have chosen Jesus. I really do, but the chief priests weren't going to leave anything to chance. And we know, don't we, that it only takes a handful of agitators to stir up a crowd. We've seen that take place in our own country this past year with rallies and protests, haven't we? And so back to the story. The crowd gets riled up, and the obvious choice, in the end, is not the actual choice. They choose Barabbas. Verse 12, what shall I do then with the one you call king of the Jews, Pilate asked them crucify him they shouted why what crime has he committed asked Pilate. but they shouted all the louder crucify him you know verse 14 is both funny and sad to me right watching Pilate trying to reason with this unruly crowd so here he is right they're out of control and he says what what crime has he committed as if any kind of common sense is going to work at this point It can't, it won't. They're beyond reason. They shouted all the louder, crucify him. So what does Pilate do then? Verse 15, wanting to satisfy the crowd. Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Five of the most pathetic words you could say about anyone. Wanting to satisfy the crowd. Pilate, wanting to satisfy the crowd. He knew what was the right thing to do, but he cared more about fickle human approval, about trying to keep the peace, than he did about the truth. So Pilate releases Barabbas from prison over to the crowd. Release. But Jesus? He is flogged, that is, he is whipped, with this brutal instrument of torture made up of leather, bone, and metal scraps known as a cat of nine tails flogged brutally, and then sentenced to death by crucifixion. Now talk about a crossroads moment, right? Talk about a reversal of fortune. Think about it. Just a few hours earlier, you have Jesus as a free man. He's sharing Passover with his disciples, his closest friends, in the upper room, while Barabbas is sitting, he's waiting, he is rotting in a lonely prison cell, knowing that it's only a matter of time before his life comes to an end by the cruelest means possible, Roman crucifixion. Things can't get any more desperate than that. You know, just last month in the state of Ohio, at the Chillicothe Correctional Institution, death row inmate Patrick Leonard was found hanging in his prison cell in an apparent suicide while awaiting an execution date which had yet to be set. Sad, but maybe not surprising. That's the mindset. Desperation, helplessness, hopelessness. This is Barabbas before the crossroads. And yet in this story that we just read, what happens? Well, in one of the most unfair moments in all of human history, Jesus, the innocent one, is condemned to death, while Barabbas, the guilty one, goes free. Jesus, the innocent one, is condemned to death while Barabbas, the guilty one, goes free. Now, if you sit in that long enough, it should rile up every single fairness fiber within you. It should. I mean, really, is that how it's supposed to go down? Is that the kind of world we live in, the guilty walk while the innocent suffer? Not only that, but think about this. What exactly did Barabbas do to deserve his freedom? There's no 11th hour DNA test results to prove his innocence. There's not even some kind of heartfelt confession of remorse over the crimes he's committed. As far as we can tell, there's absolutely nothing on his part. Yet in the end, Barabbas, Bar-Abbas, son of the father, gets to walk away while Jesus, the son of the father, takes his place and will soon be nailed to a wooden cross instead of him. That's the story of Brabus. And after this account, there's nothing more in the Bible about him. Even further than that, historians can't seem to find any further mention at all of what happens to him after this crossroads moment. Now, there's some legend that he made his way to Calvary to watch Jesus die on the cross, but there's no firm historical evidence of that actually taking place. No, all we're left with is a hanging question mark, a, a what if, a, I wonder, the kind of choose-your-own-adventure open ending to his story. Did he go to Calvary and watch Jesus die? Did his spiritual eyes open? Did he know Jesus for who he truly is? And did that awakening change his life? We don't know. When it comes to Barabbas and the rest of his story, we just don't know. Well, actually, there's more to this story. Because this Crossroads Encounter... Between Jesus and Barabbas leaves us with a few questions of our own. See, this moment when the innocent one is condemned and the guilty one goes free isn't just about Jesus and Barabbas. No, it foreshadows the cross. The cross as a word picture of both substitution and great grace, where all the guilt of our sin is placed upon Jesus and he dies in our place. Substitution and grace. See, whether we want to admit it or not, we're all just like Brabus. We are. Now, I know what you're thinking sounds a bit extreme, doesn't it, right? Sure, you're not perfect, but you're certainly not some kind of violent, criminal, murder, insurrection. Come on. Let's think a little bit about the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. He says this You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And you can imagine the hearers nodding their head when Jesus says this. Of course, murderers, killers, those who take another's life should be subject to judgment. But look at what Jesus says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister, here he's talking about the people of faith, right? Anyone who is angry with a brother or sister, not just biologically, right, will be subject it's a judgment. And so while human courts judge on the basis of external actions, God's judgment of us goes even further and looks at the attitude of our heart. And so we might be smiling on the outside, but if there is bitter hatred towards someone else that's simmering within us, Jesus says that too is a sin worthy of God's righteous judgment. The same is true with insurrection and rebellion. The Bible says that any we defy God's moral will for us, As it's revealed to us in His Word, and choose our own way instead. Whether it's word, thought, deed, motive, we are considered as lawbreakers. See, if we're going to be really honest with ourselves, it's not the unfairness of this crossroads story that should bother us the most, but rather the resemblance. Not the unfairness, but the resemblance. That we, too, stand condemned just like Barabbas. Desperate. Helpless. Hopeless. And that the story of the cross that we're going to remember this week is one where the innocent one suffers so that we, the guilty ones, can be set free. Quite the resemblance indeed. Now I realize that every Sunday here at HOVA, we've got the full spectrum of people sharing this same room. We've got long timers, we've got newcomers, we've got the fully convinced, we've got the highly skeptical. We've got those of you with faith and hope, we've got those of you with questions and doubts. Wherever you find yourself on those spectrums, two things I want you to know. First of all, I want you to know you're all welcomed here, Right? Wherever you might be on that spiritual map, we're glad you're here. You need to know that this isn't a closed club of the fully convinced and the absolute certain. No, this is a place of worship where we invite everyone to bring to God whatever's on their mind, whatever's in their heart. And so I think of Pastor Sam's message two weeks ago about Judas, that whatever questions you might have about God, about the Bible, about faith, about church, about Jesus, whatever it is, You need to know that you're welcome here, and you need to know that God is big enough to handle whatever you throw at him. You have doubts? He can handle it. You have fears? He can handle it. You have worries? He can handle it. You have questions? He can handle it. You have struggles? He can handle it. You're honest enough to tell him he'll be big enough to handle it. And so wherever you are, wherever you're going through, we're glad you're here. But second, you also need to know that what we looked at today, the story of Jesus and Barabbas, which is really just a picture of Jesus and us, you need to know that this is the heart of the Christian faith right here. Right? Christianity is not just about attending church. It's not just about singing the songs, hearing the messages, putting money in the plate. No, this is the picture. Because Christianity and the message that it shares with us back then and today is a story of substitution and grace where Jesus, the innocent one, bears the guilt of our sin and dies in our place while sparing us from the judgment we rightfully deserve. He bears the guilt of our sin. He dies in our place. And he spares us from the judgment we rightfully deserve. And the real horror, see, of Jesus dying on the cross isn't just the physical suffering he endured, although it was bitterly excruciating. No, the real horror is the spiritual, the emotional suffering that Jesus goes through as all the wrath of God and his righteous judgment is poured out upon Jesus instead of us. Which, by the way, right there, that is the height of unfairness. But what you need to know about Christianity is that in the end, it's not ultimately about fairness. It's not. See, every other religion, every other belief on this planet, is about working towards moral perfection, so that you'll be rewarded with what you deserve. Do good, get rewarded. Play by the rules. Fairness. Now, don't get me wrong, Christianity is all for doing good, doing good for others, doing good for God. But at the heart of it, it's not about what we deserve. No, it's actually the opposite. It's about grace. It's about Jesus freely offering to us with no strings attached precisely what we don't deserve, that because he took our place, the guilty get to go free just like Barabbas. This is the gospel. Jesus is our substitute. He bore the righteous judgment of God in our place, and the Bible makes it clear that he did so out of love. Love both for his perfect father and love for us as flawed and imperfect people. The message of grace and substitution is repeated throughout the pages of Scripture. One of my favorite passages where this comes through loud and clear is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 21, where the Apostle Paul says this, that God made him, speaking of Jesus who had no sin, right? the spotless, perfect Lamb of God, the one who had no sin became sin for us. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, the perfect, the innocent one, bore our sin. He took our place so that what? So that we would not only be forgiven, but also that the perfect righteousness of Jesus would become our own. See, because of Jesus, not only do the guilty go free, but the guilty are also made innocent by the cleansing and purifying work of the Holy Spirit within us. It's absolutely amazing. That's why we talk about new life in Jesus Christ. Grace, substitution, these are the themes that wait for us at the crossroads with Jesus. And so the question is what will we do with them? What will we do? With grace? What will we do with substitution? And to me, to everyone who's willing to think seriously about this story of Jesus and Barabbas, we've got to work through these three personal crossroads commitments. Three commitments. The first is this a commitment to admit your desperate need for Jesus, that Jesus died in your place. See, as incredible as this story is, both with Barabbas and with us, some people don't make the connection. They don't don't want to make the connection. They don't think they need to make the connection. And why is that? It's because they're unwilling or unable to admit to God to themselves of how much they really are, morally speaking, just like Barabbas. And so they turn their backs on grace, and instead they want to stand on their own two feet before God because they are blindly confident in their own righteousness and goodness. Some people just don't see it. Some people just don't want to see it. Listen, if that's you, then you need to know that Jesus really has nothing for you then. He doesn't, because he did not go to the cross for the self-righteous and the confident. No, he went to the cross for the desperate and the broken. He went to the cross for people who are very aware of their own faults and failures before God. Don't excuse them, don't blame them, don't dismiss them, don't downplay them. No, they own them, right? Right? They feel that death row desperation. They see how their sin and their selfishness have hurt others. And because of that desperation, they know they have nowhere else to turn but to Jesus, that they need their own crossroads moment with Him, that reversal of fortune. And so, because of that, I want to encourage all of you to a place of honesty, a place of honesty both with God and with yourselves. Don't let your stubborn pride keep you from the riches of the grace that Jesus wants to lavish upon you. Because as scary as it feels to go to that place of honest desperation, it's there and only there where the guilty get to go free and experience the love that Jesus has for us, for you. Crossroads commitment number one, admit your desperate need for Jesus. Commitment number two, accept that you are cherished by God. Accept, deep down, own that you are cherished by God. God loves you no matter what. See, when we're honest enough to identify ourselves with Barabbas, right, and that hopeless, desperate feeling, it can lead us to a place of thinking we're not worthy. We're not worthy of God's love that he couldn't possibly forgive someone with a past like ours that he couldn't love someone who is capable of such vile and vengeful thoughts like we have that he wouldn't want to be or have or accept someone who continually messes up and can't quite ever get it right have you ever been there i know i have some of you might be there right now and so you're singing these songs you're listening to this message but you can't imagine god loving someone like you you know what while it is pretty mind-boggling It's true. It is, and even if you have been rejected one way or another by everyone else in your life, you need to know that God loves you. He cherishes you. He does so much so that he allowed the crowds to choose Barabbas instead of Jesus, and he allowed his son, his one and only son, to experience the horror of the cross in your place. That is the amazing, the incredible, mind-blowing love that God has for everyone in this room, including you. As unbelievable as it might seem, you need to know it's real, it's personal, it's forever, and it is for you. It is, and so if feelings of unworthiness and worthlessness have kept you from such great grace, let today be the day that you crack the door of your heart You open the door of your wounded hearts and let God cherish you. And then finally, express your freedom by serving others. Express your freedom by serving others. Choose service over selfishness. See, we'll never know the side of heaven, how Brabus responded after being set free from his death row sentence. We'll never know if it changed his life or if he remained unaffected and just kept on living the same way he used to. We'll never know. But we will know our own response. Our own response to Jesus and his liberating love. See, it's one thing for Jesus to set us free, but what we do with that freedom, that's left up to us. It is, and so for those of us here who have responded by faith to the gift of God's amazing grace... The gift that comes only through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's my challenge. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, verse 14. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, to live selfishly, to make you the center of your own universe. That's what that means, right? Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, but rather use your freedom to serve one another humbly in love, just like Jesus did. Why? Because the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus sets us free so we can walk in his footsteps by serving others in love. That's what it looks like when we're grateful for grace, It's service, not selfishness. Serving our spouse, serving our family, serving our friends, serving this church. That just like Jesus, we're putting their needs ahead of our own. We're ministering to them in specific, intangible ways. Out of grace, with no strings attached. Not manipulatively. I'll do this, so I'll get, no, freely. Freely. That's what it means. Free to love, free to serve, free to become the men and women that God intends us to be. We admit our desperate need. We accept God's cherishing love for us. And in that freedom, we express that by serving others. In a minute, I'm going to close, but I want to invite the worship team out because we've got a song of worship that we'll close the service with. I just want you to know this. Amazing things can happen when we come to the crossroads with Jesus, right? Amazing things happen when we come to the crossroads with Jesus, where our story meets his, and we let that encounter change our lives. Because whether it's Judas or Peter or Barabbas or us, Jesus wants to so overwhelm us with his grace that it leads us to a place of worship. It leads us to a place of wonder where our hearts delightfully respond with these four simple words. How can it be? Let's pray together. Open our eyes to see Barabbas, to see ourselves in him, to feel and own the desperation and to experience the liberating love that you, Jesus, has for, have for us. For some of us here in this room, it's a first-time revelation. For others of us, it's a renewal. It's a revival. But God, open our eyes to the beauty, to the wonder of substitution and Grace. Grace grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
5: dare not lift them up to the whole.
4: Again, want to remind you of our services coming up Thursday evening, Monday, Thursday communion service right here in this room, 6 o'clock, 7.30. And then Easter Sunday, four services, eight, 9.30, 11, and 12.30. But as you go from here, may Jesus pour out his amazing grace upon your heart that you may live for him, freely forgiven and fully loved. God bless you.